How are you guys doing this morning? All right. It's a beautiful day. Um, we've been working our way through the book of Mark over the last, uh, like, three months. Um, and Mark, we, we've uh, given the title for the whole series to be called Great Beginnings because we've learned throughout the book that God is a God of fresh starts and, and about giving us new ways to think about the kingdom of God and about who Jesus is and, and how Jesus shakes up our status quo and, and changes all kinds of things that maybe we never would have expected. Um, I have a cousin. His name is Brett, and, and he's just a few years younger than I, and I don't know him real well. See, my, my extended family that way is kind of small. My dad has one brother. Um, I'm one of three siblings. Um, his brother had two sons, uh, Scott and Brett, and they've always lived completely opposite parts of the country from us. So we we didn't really get together that often. Um, they lived on the East Coast, still do, um, uh, live actually near Washington, D.C., and, and they've always lived that far from us, and, and occasionally we get together, but we would get family pictures and that kind of stuff and interact that way quite a bit. Um, the only thing I really know about Brett really well is that he was a rocker, a, a world-class rocker, and I don't mean the way you're thinking. I mean like this kind of rocker. I mean, from the time he was really, really little, it was all about the rocking horse, right? We get family pictures, and there's Brett on a rocking horse. And it was just intense. I mean, those ones with the springs on them, wham, as hard as you could do it. And when those would actually break, they'd get a new one. And he'd do new rocking. And the few times we saw him, he was always rocking like that. And that eventually moved its way towards rocking chairs, rocking recliners. I heard the story that when he went to college, he took a rocking chair. Now... I don't think I could have gotten away with that in the dorm. Hey, did you meet the kid with the rocking chair? You know, it, but he loved to rock. There, there was something about it. Uh, and, and then I know when he got his first apartment, he had a rocking chair and right next to it, a little fridge and a microwave. He could sit and watch TV and rock and never have to leave. Right. Now, now rocking is great. I, I, and lots of people like to rock in rocking chairs. I, when I was a little bit younger, I remember when my when my grandmother was still living, I would take her out sometimes for lunch or take her to get her hair done. And we'd go back to the assisted living center center she lived in at that time. And you'd say, hey, grandma, you want to go back to your room? It's like, no, I think I want to sit in one of these chairs. And she'd point to over this this whole row of rocking chairs along this living room area. And she'd go sit there and, and just rock with all the other ladies who had just gotten their hair done. Just rock. Because rocking, there's something about it, right? It just, it just feels right. It's comforting. It's comfortable. It's, it's relaxing. Anybody who's uh, been a parent of an infant or babysat, you know that, that kids love to be rocked. That's the way you can calm them down quite a bit, right? And so you rock in the chair. And I remember the first rocking chair we owned was, you know, kind of a classic wooden one, you know, with the kind of curved back and the seat. And I, I bought that for Laura uh, for her first Mother's Day, which was like six months before our son Ryan was born. And, because everybody knows a baby when you rock. It just has something in it. And that includes, like, the parent's sway, holding the baby, right? That's rocking. Or the way the dads do it, which is like the football hold, rocking the baby, right? Because there's something that happens physiologically in rocking. And, and, and I like to rock. For somebody who's really fidgety like I am, rocking chairs are awesome because you can sit and do something. Rocking, and so all my office chairs are always ones that like swiveling on wheels and they rock and they move because that's that's what I need because I'm kind of fidgety and antsy. So I contacted Barry this week and said, "Hey, is there any way we can get a rocking chair up on the platform?" He said, "Sure," and uh, I think they got this one from the nursery. And so I was thinking it'd be like you know the little wooden one you're rocking. No, this is like airline seat. This, this is comfy. And I was thinking about rocking chairs, and it was funny, even this morning, I saw this rocking chair sitting up here and then started visualizing, what if, what if this whole room was filled with rocking chairs? Like if that's what you were sitting in, 
It'd be a disaster. I mean, Dave would have been up here and go, hey, can you stand with me and sing? It's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm just great. Stand up and shake hands with somebody? Yeah, they come see me. That's fine. Is Dale going to preach the whole sermon from that chair? Hmm. See, rocking chairs give this sense of comfort and relaxation. You know what's hard to be mean in a rocking chair? Except you kids get off my lawn. That's probably about the most of it. It's comfortable. It's relaxing. You feel good. You feel contained. You know, working through this book of Mark, we, 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 we encountered incredible stories last week uh, of these two characters that Jesus interacted with. And, and one was this guy named Jairus. If you remember, he was this religious leader, had status and power and prestige and wealth in the community. And he came because his daughter was dying, and he came to find Jesus, and he basically humbled himself. He came to this place, swallowed his pride, said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go see Jesus, because even though Jairus was part of a group of people that basically lived in opposition to what Jesus was doing, he desperately knew something about Jesus could help his daughter. And so he came to get him and said, come help my daughter. You're the only hope we have. And Jesus said, yeah, let's go. And but, but on their way, this, this other character, this woman who had been sick for 12 years, if you recover, with some kind, of, some kind of bleeding issue, she came in the middle of it, and, and almost in this sense of, of desperation again, in, in a sense almost of magic, she reached out and touched Jesus' clothes, and she was healed, remember? And, and that interrupted Jairus' journey back to his house, and, and, but she was healed, and, and we discovered her whole life was transformed by Jesus in this personal interaction with him. It wasn't just healing of an illness, but her whole life was changed forever. And we discovered that the, the intersection of these two characters with Jesus was, was about faith. And we discovered that the faith that God honors is faith that's fueled by desperation and, and lived out in radical trust. And that was the, the nature of what we learned last week. And, and even if we back up farther in the book of Mark, when Jesus started teaching in parables, and there was kind of this confusing word, he said that everything I teach in parables, and, and, and we go, well, that means some people don't get it. And It wasn't that he wanted the teaching to remain secret, but he wanted people to seek him out. Remember, he always was willing to answer the questions of those who followed him when they said, tell us about the parable. And so we discovered in that that, that people who grow and mature and deepen in their faith are people who seek to know more. I want to know more. Teach me more. So there's this persistence. There's this faithful pursuit. There's this desperation. Desperation doesn't play well from a rocking chair. In fact, desperation is more about the passage we have this week. I mean, and the rocking chairs are more about the passage this week, which is found in Mark chapter 6. So as Jesus left there, in other words, the place where all these amazing things happened last week, uh, left there and went to his hometown, that'd be Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What, what's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't, aren't his sisters here with us? And, and they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. 
But these town people seem kind of confusing to me. They, they, they confuse me because this is so counter to how we tend to see things in our culture. I mean, we have the, we have the Olympics coming up soon, right? And, and what always happens in the Olympics is, is you have those stories, those up-close-and-personal stories where the news crew goes back to somebody's hometown, and they celebrate this life, and you meet the parents who got up at 4 a.m. every day to take the kid to the pool because now they're Olympic swimmer and started when they were little, or, or gymnastics practice, all these things that they spent so much time pursuing. And, and there's this sense we get, you know, even, you know, like there's some Coloradans in the Olympics, you know, Missy Franklin, right? Colorado's own Missy Franklin. There are always stories about that, or, or there are some cross-country runners. Or, and we celebrate that, right? Local kid does good. We, we love to hear about that. We almost live vicariously. We, we love stories of people picking themselves up by their bootstraps and, and making something amazing happen, and we identify with them because they're from our town. But we don't see that here. We see Jesus who's been doing these amazing things that obviously they knew about, but, but we even remember back Several weeks ago, remember when, when Jesus was in this house and it was so crowded they couldn't even eat and, and members of his family came? Why? Because they wanted to get him out of there because they thought he was crazy. And he made that statement of, who's my mother and my brothers and sisters? Well, they, they, they knew him so well, yet they didn't know him at all. And Jesus went to his hometown. It says he was teaching in the synagogue and, and people heard it and they were amazed, but their response was not, this is awesome. Wasn't this little Jesus? We, we used to watch him. And look what's happened now. This is amazing. No, it said they took offense at him. They didn't deny that he did great things, that he was teaching wisdom. Instead, they said, well, where did he get this? Who, who gave him the authority to teach like this? Who, who said he could be this kind of person? Who said he could do this in the synagogue? He, he's way outside of his place in life. And it's a fascinating journey that, that they're on. And, and, and what they did is they looked at him, and instead of acknowledging the greatness, they looked and they questioned his upbringing. You see, too often when we look at a culture like the one Jesus grew up in, once again, we kind of miss the point because we don't grasp some things. And there's some interesting terminology going on in this passage when they said, isn't this the carpenter? And we try to paint this picture of Jesus so desperately because we, we know he's God. We know he's fully God and fully man. And so we, we paint this picture of his humanity to say, when it says he's a carpenter, that meant he was like this great artisan. He produced the most beautiful furniture you'd ever seen. And if he played on the school football team, he would have been the star, right? No, the, the word used here for carpenter is this Greek word called tekton, which is, means a, a simple worker in wood or metal or stone. And, and in the context of Nazareth and Galilee, that probably meant he was like your local handyman. If your door was broken, you'd, you'd call a tecton. You'd, you'd call Jesus, and, and he could come and fix your door and maybe build some rudimentary furniture or a small building. And, and that was the nature of a tecton. It wasn't this glorious position. This was a, an everyday working man. And so they look and say, this is Jesus, right? And he, he was teaching in this synagogue. He, he's been doing all these miracles. Who says he can do that? He, he's, he's the handyman. And that, that was kind of scandalous. In fact, I almost laugh when I, when I think about that story earlier in Mark. Remember where the, the, the four friends brought their, their, their paralyzed friend before Jesus, and the only way they could get him there was to tear open the roof, right, and then lower him down in front of Jesus. And to me, I'm looking at that story and, and thinking, you know, the tecton in Jesus, the carpenter's going, you know, I'm probably going to have to fix that. Because that's how he thought. That's how he was raised. That's what he was trained to do. He was the tecton. He was the handyman. He was the journeyman. He was the common laborer. 
And in that culture, very different than ours, you don't really overcome that position in life. It was a highly classified social structure. And you had beggars, and then you had kind of common laborers, then you have maybe some skilled laborers like Jesus, and then you have the scribes who were wealthy enough that they could spend time learning in the synagogue. Remember the, remember the play, the musical Fiddler on the Roof, and the famous song, If I Were a Rich Man? What was the thing he talked about? I mean, he was the milkman in town, right? When he talked about being rich, I'd have time then to, to sit in the synagogue and pray and discuss scriptures with the learned men, because that's what you could do. And so for somebody like that, that's wealthy, that did those things, those people could speak in the synagogue. They could have wisdom, but, but, but not Jesus, not the tecton. They valued his work, but... This is way out of his station in life. So isn't this, this the tecton, but also isn't this Mary's son? And, and that's an interesting phrase too. Because in that culture, you would have never identified someone by who their mother was. You would have identified them by who their father was. But we don't hear Joseph. So the, some, of the, some of the pictures could be that, well, by this time in life, Joseph may have died. And so he's referred to as Mary's son. But it seems more likely that they were saying this more in a derogatory way. Because remember who Mary was. And the scandal of Mary. I mean, she was pregnant outside of marriage. And said it was supernatural. And, and Joseph still agreed to marry her, although he could have divorced, said we're not going to get married. But, but, but they sent her away for a few months and while she was pregnant. And, and then they got together and, and Jesus was born out of town in Bethlehem. And, but, but people can do the math. And they say, something is wrong with it. This, this is the outsider. This is, I mean, his, we, we know his brothers and his sisters. We know his mother. We know what that whole situation was about because what happens in rocking chairs too is gossip. Isn't he the tecton? Isn't he the handyman? Isn't he Mary's son? How can he be saying all these things? Well, well this, is, this is an interesting story. An interesting predicament. And, and I think what's fascinating is, is it's right after the, the story from last week. It's right after the story of these people who, who in absolute faith and the object of their faith was Jesus. And they came and they were persistent and they pursued Jesus as, you are the only one who can help us. And then we have these people who knew him so well. He, he grew up in front of them. He was their friend. He was their classmate at synagogue. And they said, who is this? He can't possibly be who he says he is. You see, I, I don't think they understood the parable of the mustard seed. That was one of our stories from a few weeks ago. Jesus started speaking in parables, and, and he talked about the mustard seed. He had talked about the kingdom of God. He came on the scene in Mark saying, the kingdom is about here. It's, it's right about ready to happen. And, and he's been telling all along that he's the king of the kingdom and, and that their understanding of the kingdom was all wrong because they wanted something wow and big and glorious and where they get put back into their rightful place in society. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or more specifically the kingdom of God is like what happens to the mustard seed. It's planted under the ground and you, you can't really see what's happening, right? It's something small, it's something insignificant, but out of that ultimately will come the most amazing thing you could possibly imagine. And they look at Jesus as the tecton, as Mary's son, as that's insignificant. And he wants them to grasp that no, there is something so beyond this that you will never imagine it. You see, what I think happened is, is these people in this town that knew Jesus so well, they thought, were so familiar with him that they missed out on who he really is 
and what he really wanted to do in their lives. And, and if I think of that kind of situation, that forces me to ask the same question about my own life. Am I so familiar with Jesus that I miss out on who he really is and who he really wants to be in my life? Our familiarity with Jesus. In other words, these passages, one is saying, do we see Jesus? Do we pursue him desperately? Is our faith fueled by desperation and lived out in radical trust? Do we seek to know more? Do we, do we follow him persistently to know and to learn and to grow and to, to learn how to walk through the storms of life? Or, or do we have a rocking chair faith that just lives in familiarity and talks about the Jesus we think we know? Well, that's the tecton. That's Mary's son. Who does he think he is? What's interesting in this passage is that up front they heard him speak and they said they were amazed. I think, once again, not amazed at what he accomplished, but amazed that he would dare to say who he is. And then it says Jesus was amazed at them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And because of that, it says he really didn't do much in that town. Healed a few people who came to him and then he left to go preach other places. See, the problem is, is the people in that town, because they were so familiar, they couldn't get past the scandal of Jesus. And those aren't words we use very often, the scandal of Jesus. But who Jesus was, who Jesus is, is scandalous. It's against everything people thought. That's why they would look and say, he's the tecton. He's not a person who can speak with wisdom. He's Mary's son. He can't be from God. It was a scandal to get to this place. And and I have to admit that, that... For us to truly know Jesus, to live in desperation for Jesus, we have to get past the scandal and welcome the scandal as well as to who this Jesus is. And and deep down in our culture, we we still want the big, glorious, huge show. That's what we want because that's what we think Jesus is. And and if we trace our history as a country, we've, we've lived a pretty good life as followers of Christ. You know, a lot of the, our country is founded on principles rooted in Christianity and, and, and the Judeo-Christian ethic. And those are great things that establish great freedom. But, but sometimes we can then mistake a status in our community with truly who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't the prominent one. He, he, he wasn't the one that was called to be on TV when a local catastrophe happened. Who can we hear of? Let's have a representative from the church. He wasn't that. He, he was the one that was crucified for who he said he was. And we live in this world of we paint a picture of who Jesus is and how we as followers should then be perceived. And we mistake that for who Jesus really is because Jesus said, you'll share with me in my sufferings. Are you willing to drink my cup? Those are hard things. And it's a scandal because it's much easier to sit in our rocking chairs and be comfortable. And in some ways, the scandal for us, the the way we just acknowledge and say we have a vision of who Jesus is, is because we hear the stories. I mean, think about all the stories that we talked about, even just in the book of Mark, or or think farther back in the the calendar, and we have Christmas time, right? The Christmas story is amazing. But if you have a rocking chair faith, you hear the Christmas story, and you think, the angel announced to Mary 
that, that she was going to give birth to, to the Son of God. And she said, may it be to me as you have said. And, and angels came and spoke to, to, to shepherds, and, and they came to worship Jesus and find out who this was. We go, oh, that's an amazing story from our rocking chair. And we nod in agreement. Or, or the stories last week about those people and the healing. And Wow, they lived in desperation. Yeah, I live in desperation. Yep. Hmm. Great story. Jesus is strong. One of my favorite stories about things like rocking chairs and sitting around and waiting and relaxing is from a TV show I grew up with. Maybe some of you remember the Andy Griffith show. Old black and white TV show. You got Andy and Barney and Aunt B and Opie and Goober and all the guys, right? And, and, and there was this one episode that's classic where they're sitting on the porch and, and there was this visitor from New York City who had come, this, this businessman who was very successful. And he had gotten a, a speeding ticket in town like on Friday and, and Andy basically wanted to force this guy to slow down and relax. So they said, well, you can't pay your fine until Monday because that's when the court's in session. And so you mean I have to stay in this no-nothing town for the next weekend? Yep. And so they had gone to church that morning, and now they're sitting on Andy's porch. It's everybody, including that a town guy, right? And they're sitting there and playing the guitar and just kind of chatting and sighing a lot. And, and Barney goes, you know what I'm going to do? Get up, go down to Wally's, get a root beer, and then head on over to Thelma Lou's and watch some TV. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. Get up, down to Wally's, get a root beer, head over to Thelma Lou's and watch some TV. It's went on and on and on. That's what I'm going to do. And, and finally this out-of-town guy just loses it. Well, get up and go! Now the moral of that episode was there are times you need to just stop. Okay, so, so the, the moral was, this guy was so busy, he never took time to relax. And we know we need to relax, and some of that happens great in a rocking chair on a porch on Sunday afternoon. And you need to stop and slow down. And, and, and Scripture implores us to, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And, and there were seven days. On the seventh day, we rest, and we cease doing the labor. We cease doing the things that we pursue all week long and stop. And that's rejuvenating, and it's healthy, and it's good, and it's worshipful, and it's, it's the way God wired us. So we want to do that, and Jesus practiced that. But the reality is, is that Jesus is looking at us and saying, are you living in desperation? What we talked so much about last week, and you can't live in desperation from a rocking chair. And he says, there's a time you have to get up and say, I've heard all these things forever. I've heard these stories. I've sat there and nodded in agreement and say, I know who Jesus is. And he has promised certain things in life. I know what Jesus wants in my life. And he says, you're supposed to be people that bear one another burdens. And if we sit in the chair and go, yep, you're right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We need to bear one another burdens. And then just go back rocking. Or we're people that have been told and taught through Scripture that we should consider it joy when we, when we go through trials of many kinds. And we, we've talked over these weeks of Mark of looking at all these storms that seem to just come after us. And we say, yeah, yeah, better growth happens in the struggle. And I trust Jesus to be with me. But, but in a rocking chair, we go, yeah, that's true. That's a good story. I believe that intellectually. And Jesus said, get out of that chair and live that way. Can you step out in radical trust? Or can you just nod in agreement and say, yeah. Because I'm so familiar with the stories of Jesus, and I believe what he says is true, but, but will I get out of the chair and go, and, and I'm going to step into that 
and I'm going to trust that. When it says radical trust, it means radical trust. You see, they, they really only knew Jesus superficially. They knew Jesus by the picture they created of what a Messiah could be or should be. They knew Jesus by what they thought his actual background was. And they measured him by his status in the community. He's the tecton. He came and fixed my table. Who is he to stand there in the synagogue? Where did he get this wisdom? They were so caught up. And where did he get this? And by what authority does he do this that they didn't ask, what does this mean? What does what he's teaching mean? And how does that play out in my life? And that's, we can't do that from a rocking chair faith. All we can do is nod in agreement and say, yep, that's the truth. I read that in my devotions this morning. And Jesus says, you can't follow me from your rocking chair. The terms we used for desperation last week were you're desperate in the way you need breath and in the way you need water. You absolutely need them to survive. And we said Jesus wants us in that place. Our faith is fueled by desperation. It lives out in active trust and in radical trust. We can't just say here are the stories and I think they're great. We have to be able to step into them. And say, Jesus is radically calling us, all of us, to live in faith that is fueled by desperation, that is, that is rooted in desperation, that lives out in radical trust, that, that can't happen in a rocking chair. And I know in my own life too much, it's just I can acknowledge with my head who Jesus is and how he's called us to be. But how often do we step into it? And truly say, I'm going to live that way. I'm going to live in community with people. I am going to live as a confessing follower of Christ who who proclaims Jesus' goodness no matter what and easily says, can you forgive me? It enters into that truth and to that power and to that way of living. And you know what? In truly following Jesus, stepping into that may mean we're persecuted for it. Jesus said, you're going to share in my suffering as well as in my glory. And we don't really want to go there. We don't want to step into that kind of thing. Is that what Jesus really wants? Because the Jesus I've painted said that I'm not going to go through those kind of struggles. The Jesus I want and the one I've painted said it's all about the big and the show and we're going to be honored because we say we follow Jesus. There was a time when being a pastor of a church in earlier in our history was one of the most status-filled, elevated positions in a community. We could play golf at country clubs on Mondays for free. Did you know that? It didn't happen anymore. Because now too often we're ridiculed. I had a very interesting interaction with a man at the food bank that I run this past week. And we've chatted over, you know, just inter- he's deeply troubled going through all kinds of things. And he looks at me and goes, Dale, guys, I've talked to him, um, you know, I'm a follower of Christ. And he goes, are you... Are you an evangelical Christian? And I said, yeah. And his face just got all... I'm going to have to rethink what I think about evangelical Christians. That was a weird conversation. 
Because his view of people like us that worship Jesus and the kind of churches we do is that we are people that will paint a picture of Jesus and we're more, we're more about judging what their behavior is or what they did instead of demonstrating Jesus. And, and to me, I'm going, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. Why wouldn't I want to feed you when you're hungry? And that's what motivates me. But obviously there's this picture that's been painted sometimes by our own actions and words and sometimes by a misunderstanding. But whatever it is, we have to overcome these things. That there's this picture of what we're like as Christians that misses the point of how Jesus called us to be. And I don't know what else is going on inside that guy's head. Because what we were doing in the name of Jesus is what, not what he expected us to do. And I, I haven't come to a conclusion about that interaction. But it, was, it, was a, it hit me. It's like, how have we tended to live the name of Jesus for somebody like this who, who's getting help in this context to be shocked that we were Christians? Whew. I have to ponder that in my own life. How am I living Jesus? How am I expressing Jesus? Is it in a realm of judgmentalism or in the realm of Jesus saying, you know, by being with me, you're acceptable because my life transforms you? Do we express that in our interactions? Or are we so familiar with Jesus, the Jesus we've painted, the picture of what we think what Jesus is supposed to be like and what the church is supposed to be like, that we've missed who he really is and how he really wants to live in us and work through us? That's going to be different from each of us. Each of us are in a different situation. It's all the same hope and the same forgiveness and the same grace and the same mercy and the same love of God. But, but, but it plays out differently because we're in a different context. And we each live in a different place and have different giftedness and have different interactions and different opportunities. But whatever it is, it has to be in a way that's not sitting back in a rocking chair, but it's lived out gloriously in the way Jesus is interacting. It's desperation. Let's pray.